You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mino Lion Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Kevin Waits again, and I welcome you to a new edition of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. Well, we unpack our bags. We talk about culture. We talk about race, gender, food, skin. Nothing's off the table uh, with the hopes that we could somehow move forward together. And so uh, before we get into the show tonight, I want to thank all of the listeners uh, from across the country and across the world. And I always say that if you keep listening, me and my guests are going to keep talking. I'm extremely excited to welcome a, a I call him a friend. Uh, a, a colleague, a father, a professor, a husband, awesome, awesome dude uh, that I had the opportunity and honor and privilege to meet. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Dr. Danny Malone Jr. Thank you for being here tonight. Oh, man, uh, what a great introduction, uh, Kelvin. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so first, thank you for having me on the Safe Conversations podcast. Um I've listened to several of them. I enjoy the conversations that uh, you have with your guests. Uh, I believe it allows for more engagement and some very pressing issues that we have in our society today. Do you think you said engagement? And, and honestly, you know, that's why I really created this platform, just, you know, for, for people to be able to come on and talk, you know what I'm saying, and not feel like, you know what, just because my perspective is contrary to yours, I'm going to be shunned or isolated or put on an island. I want to be people to be able to come on here and speak. So I'm glad uh, that you've had an opportunity to listen. And uh, and man, I'm excited about our conversation tonight. So if you could, can you start out just by telling us a little bit about your background, your family, your education, career, anything you think it is? The listening audience needs to know about Dr. D. Is it okay for me to call you Dr. D? <laughs> uh, if you want, but you know, uh, I usually, I, I tell people, you know, uh, Danny from Greenspoint, you know, Dr. D, you know, that's my title, you know, for my job, yeah. but you yeah. know, not who I am, but go for it. Uh, it's fine. Dr. D. I'm going to just roll <laughs> okay. with Dr. D tonight. Tell us about you. All right. So um, again, thank you for having me on. So a bit of background from uh, for me. I was born in Los Angeles, California, May 17th, 1987. So I just turned 36 uh, last Wednesday. Um, wh what can I say? You know, um, my mother moved my younger brother and I to Texas uh, when I was two. Um, met my uh, stepdad, who was my dad, um, shortly after. And they just began to build a life. Uh, my mother... I uh, was a non-traditional student, so she was going to college back in California. Some things happened, and then she moved to Texas, and then uh, she waited tables at Bennigan's, which is like this Irish pub um, in Houston, Texas, where, where she moved to. And that's where she actually met my dad, because um, he was working there as well. And then at some point, you know, uh, 
she decided to go back to school. She originally went for engineering, but then pivoted because um, she wanted to have the same schedule as her kids as we started to go to school. So she decided to become a teacher. So I'm the son of a teacher. Uh, my dad um, grew up in Bordersville, Texas. And so that's uh, like a country part um, in the outskirts of, of Houston. He's very proud of their, uh, proud of being from Bordersville and um, didn't go to college or anything like that, but always hustled, um, always found a way to, you know, make a way for us, uh, instilled a lot of principles. Um, I'm sure some I'll talk about later as far as integrity, being proud of who you are, being a stand-up person, um, honoring your family and, and things of that nature. And so also disciplinarian. So I got this mother who, you know, grinded. We, we saw uh, what it meant to have a college education. So she imparted that on all of us. Uh, a few years later, I had my little brother, TJ. So it was three of us in one household. I'm the oldest in that household. Uh, I have an older stepsister, Misha, who my father had, before, my dad had before um, he met my mother. But in the household, it was the three of us. So I'm the oldest. Um, as far as my, you know, my mother and then my biological father, to my knowledge, there was no male that had gone to college and graduated and all that stuff. So in that upbringing, that's kind of what I kind of understood the assignment, as the kids would say. And, you know, that was it. So we grew up in uh, Greens Point, which is the northwest part of Houston, Texas. Uh, it's urban. It has a moniker of people say Guns Point. But it, it, it was it was home. Um my parents were hard on us. School was key. Uh, you know, uh, we played basketball outside, just like the other neighborhood kids. You get into fights, like just regular stuff, being young men. And my parents knew being young and black in the 90s and then in Texas and where we were, it was important that there were certain things that we had to learn to know about, you know, in, uh, in our lives. And so I think that was why they're really hard on us. Those things kind of helped shape who Dr. D is. Um, also seeing a lot of family in prison growing up. That also shaped uh, how I, you know, understood the world, navigated, you know, certain situations and knowing that the odds were stacked against us. And so while I did see my mom graduate from college, you know, in elementary, and then later on she would get her master's, I also had an environment where that's not what I saw. That's not what I experienced. And so she was more of the, the exception to the rule but she, you know, both her and my dad said, that's still no excuse. Like you can, you know, you can have, you have to see beyond that. We expect more of you. The standard in this house is different. And so I was able to kind of use that and as motivation to, you know, get through high school. And then I would do all my uh, college work at Texas A&M University and College Station. So Giga Maggie's. Um, I started as an electrical engineering student. So after about two years that... <laughs> Uh, the math wasn't math, and as the kids would say, and so uh, I would transition to sociology, and I fell in love, like the idea of trying to understand people, still trying to solve puzzles, being analytical. I still got to use those skills, but to understand our society and uh, try to answer the question of why people engage in certain behaviors. What is the interaction between individuals within the groups and their environments that can help us understand certain outcomes in our society? And so um, from there, you know, you get your degrees. I set the standard for my little brothers. And so what was cool is being that first male to 
and, and my family to graduate from college with the bachelor's and master's PhD. My little brothers, they each have at least a master's and then, you know, have a couple of male cousins who have also graduated from college. And so before us, there was no males that that had that. And so a big part of my life, my identity is knowing that I was that trailblazer. And so the next generation knows that, it, that it's possible. Um, and so you uh, going back to the college stuff, grad school, I just continued to stay at Texas A&M. Uh, I would go and get my master's and my PhD. And then, you know, it's time to get a job. And so that's how I get to South Carolina. And so um, my first position in South Carolina um, was at Coker College. It's now Coker University, but Coker College is in Hartsville, South Carolina, quaint uh, town. And um, I get there in the fall of 2016. I was recruited there by a former colleague who I also went to grad school with. And, it, it, you know, I learned a lot about my industry. Um, at a private liberal arts, you're doing, you're doing a lot. You're teaching a lot. Uh, you're doing a lot of service. You're wearing a lot of hats. And, um, and also the community that I was serving was very different than um, that I taught while I was at Texas A&M. And so um, I, um, I really got a sense of my identity as a professor, as a Black professor at Coker. A lot of the students uh, came from similar demographics to me. At least 30% of the students were African-American. And so I'm sure for a lot of them, having African-American professor was important. They hadn't seen that really too much in their lives. But then also in the way I carry myself, it's also unique um, for my for the position that I was in. And I think that rubbed a lot of students the right way. Um, even students who didn't look like me were like, oh, this this is happening. And then be OK with it. Right. So being, being able to sit in that uncomfortableness for a minute to kind of see like, OK, if we can get through all our uncomfortability. Dr. Malone's actually not a bad guy. Like he's actually teaching me things that I may not have known about myself. So not only sociology, but about myself. And so that's a bit of the background about me as far as my family, education and kind of how Dr. D came to be and continues to try. And so, of course, currently I'm at Coastal Carolina University. I just finished my first year. Um, it's amazing. I uh, have amazing colleagues uh, across the board. Um I'm super excited to get into the second year. That was a lot. <laughs> Man, you know what? I could actually take what you said and not ask you another question and just dissect it. That was a lot. That was a lot. But I appreciate you going back. So from Cali, L.A. to Texas to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Man, what a journey. And you're still a young man in the journey is nowhere close to being over. I, I love that. So I do want to talk to you about a few things that you mentioned. You mentioned okay. the assignment, the assignment. And we have something in common in that, you know, I'm, I'm the first uh, person in my immediate family, you know, to graduate from college as well. And, you know, for you, it sounded like your mom. You know, she was well-educated. She was a college grad and she she broke it down. You know, hey, this is the route you need to go and this is why. In my case, neither one of my parents graduated from high school. You know what I'm saying? And, and so my motivation was I don't want to fail. You know what I'm saying? I knew what the assignment was. I knew that I had... Uh, family and friends dependent on me. 
You know what I'm saying? And so my motivation was, I can't fail. It's all, you know, and it's always been that, uh, Dr. D. I didn't realize it until about three years ago. My daughter says to me, she said, man, daddy, you know, I've been watching you for years. You go hard. You do this. You, you, you work hard. Why do you go so hard? First time I really thought about it, you know, and I said, uh, hmm. I said, honestly, I just, I never wanted to fail, you know? And so when I realized that, that's okay to have that motive, motivation, I think, you know, to a certain degree, but then should we be motivated by fear, right? And so after I realized that, you want to say something, I'm going to let you, but after I realized that, things kind of shifted for me, you know what I'm saying? And I started, you know, think outside the box and realize that, okay, that fear may have gotten me to a certain point, right? But should I really be motivated by fear or should I really fully understand and embrace the assignment? You know what I'm saying? And be motivated, motivated by that. You about to say something? Well, first, uh, excellent. Um, I definitely feel you uh, in regards to that, that fear, that fear of, of failure. And so while you didn't have the parents that are graduating from college, I had to come behind someone who did it, right? And I was alive to see it. It's different from my daughter who will never see me in school. I've done it all, right? Her mother has already done that twice. Mm-hmm. She will never see that. But I saw my mom do it not once, but twice. So for us, yeah, that fear was there because it's like someone already did it. So, you know, what's the problem? Um, you got to repeat. You got to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also her being a teacher and me being in school at those schools. So not only were, you know, oh, that's Mrs. Stewart's son, right? And so having that pressure on, but that fear of failure can be a motivator. That mm-hmm. is what you get at. It can be a, 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 a motivator. But at the same time, I think what you're getting at is that should that be the only thing, right? Is that what I have to right. always operate out of? And I think mm-hmm. that can be unhealthy, right? Like mm-hmm. to operate out of fear 100% of the time, it can be seen as a motivator because, you know, that might be the thing. That's a lot of people who grind like, hey, I came out of poverty. I never want to go back. And um, as much as I love Grease Point, that is one of my motivations is to never go back, is to never have that situation. I had the fear, you know, in college of letting my parents down because I know the sacrifices that were made for me to be in that position. Um, I knew I had my brothers watching me. So I agree with you um, with the idea of, of fear. But then that fear will bring you back to the assignment. So the assignment, that that goal is to get it done. Mm-hmm. How do I go about doing that? And how do I keep the motivation going outside the idea of fear? Yeah. So what other piece can I pick to be my kind of North Star, right? Yeah. I'm telling you, you know, this thing we call life is a journey, you know, because again, when I re- when she asked me that question and I realized that I said it out loud, of course, you know, when we write it down and we say it out loud, it comes to life. And from that point on, the fear went from, you know what? I got to do this for my kids. You know what I'm saying? I got to show them what's up. You know what I'm saying? I Just like you said, having that, that, that roadmap or that example. So uh, I appreciate you uh, digging in with me on that. Let me ask you this. You talked about your experience at Coker College, and I can only imagine that it that it was, you know, a transition for you as well as the students. But you talked about 
how some students would look at you, be uncomfortable for a little while. And then after you, you chop it up or interact or, or, you know, you, you, you find a way to connect. Oh, Dr. D's all right. Is that pretty accurate? Yes. And, and not just the students, right. Also the, the, the faculty, uh, um, if we want to dig into one of the elements of, of the podcast, it's about the idea of race. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think a lot of it is, okay, this black man is in this space that's generally um, tailored to middle-class white values. And so I'm in this space, but the way I'm in this, in this space is not traditionally seen. And what I mean is that I'm a professor, not only being black male, having this PhD, which is a very small percentage of all PhDs. So I'm already in that kind of elite or exclusive category, but then even how I present. So, and what I mean is using colloquial language. So I use slang, you know, African-American vernacular English. Um, You know, I have to talk about these tough topics of race, racism, racialization, uh, gender, sexuality, all these kind of tough topics um, that can make people uncomfortable. And so, you know, students, they have to kind of take all it in. They come from various backgrounds. Uh, they may have never met someone like me in my position of authority. because That's also a mix of it, too. I'm in a position of authority. Um, and so having the students work through that, and it's for both of us, too, because I have my own kind of um, things I have to work through um, as far as the job and things of that nature. But, yeah, there, there's an uncomfortability that takes place for both. The advantage I have is I'm there being the professor. I can control the environment to a particular degree mm-hmm. um, and try to manage those personalities. And I also had the experience with faculty because I think a lot of faculty, they're honest, they haven't dealt with someone like me. And when right. I say someone like me, it's not a negative thing. It's that I do know I'm unique in what I present uh, to my job, to my field. Um, I'm not I'm not the uh, the person that's going to code switch. And that's something I talk to my students about. Code switching it's it's a survival tactic. Uh, I'm very familiar with it. Like I said, my mother's at, you know educated. Like I know the game. I know how to play the game. But mm-hmm. I also have seen in life that you can get burned playing the game, and then you people can have regrets about it. Like man, yeah. maybe I should have just played it close to who I actually am. And so mm-hmm. when I came into because I had experiences in undergrad and grad school, I was like, when I get this job. I'm going to be Danny from Greenspoint, which is bringing back to what I, you know, the whole doctor thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got the PhD. That's cool. But I was this person before I ever got a PhD. I was this guy. Yeah. And so I want to bring that to the classroom. I want to bring that into all these spaces I'm in because I'm trying to build capacity for other people just to be themselves. Um, and, you know, because we're going to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, all those things. Mm-hmm. This is a part of it. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be this cookie cutter version. You don't have to minimize yourself just to make other people feel comfortable. And, you know, and so a big part of me coming in authentically myself, it was a promise to, you know, Danny from Green's point that, hey, before there was ever a degree or anything like that, you were this kid just trying to get out. You were this kid who wanted to make a difference. You wanted to be the that person that someone can look at and say, oh, there is some you don't have to dim your light or cover your language or do all these things to be accepted. Because now I'm in this position, this privilege. I'm going to use that privilege to um, to lift others up. And so yeah. I do that. But then also allow people to be challenged. Like, yeah. oh, what are these preconceived notions? Uh, is it really Dr. Malone having an issue or is it something within me? And I let mm-hmm. people go on that journey. I'm willing to yeah. be with you on there 
because I just want everybody to become better people, yeah. to be the change I wish to see in the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, my experience, um, have you ever felt, and I suspect I know the answer to this question, but have you ever <laughs> caught yourself like about to just slip or trip? I'll give you an example. I remember, uh, you know, as police chief, uh, we, you know, we, we were involved in some pretty, pretty serious cases. And then and it was a it was a homicide in this particular case. And I remember doing a press conference. And I remember someone saying it wasn't about the information. Right. We, we updated the community on the fact that, hey, we're making arrests in this homicide. We thank the community for the assistance. We're, you know, our heart goes out to the family, all of that stuff. But out of everything I had to say for one person, uh, it was an older white lady, right? The only thing she had to say was, oh, he speaks well. You know what I'm saying? And it was like, really? Really? You know, and I'm thinking in my mind, of course, I didn't say it out loud. You know, you, you got to keep your composure, and, you know, but I'm thinking. How in the hell am I supposed to speak? You know, what I'm saying what is your expectation? You know, you know, how is it that you expect me to speak? And so my question for you, Dr. D, is, is have you ever uh, been in a situation like that that you can share with us? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you got the whole you're so articulate, right? That's mm-hmm. usually the, the the phrase that people use. And it's because, you know, and a lot of that just comes from, you know, preconceived notions about people and their particular backgrounds and things of that nature, which you can chalk it up to, to ignorance um, for the most part. Um, yeah, in my academic career, I, I've definitely faced um, what I would consider that as a microaggression. Um, there's a, a book chapter I wrote actually talks about my journey. Uh, I shared it on social media earlier today. Um, it's called Be Bold, Be You, My Black Academic Journey. And so what I do is I actually talk about some instances at my previous institution. Uh, one was a microaggression. And just to cover it real quick, uh, I was leaving a meeting with an older uh, white male faculty member. And I'm a uh, tenure track. And what that means is that I'm on my way to tenure. I don't have it. And tenure is supposed to be a kind of more permanent job status um, at a higher education institution, which is supposed to make it harder for you to lose your job. Like you have to do a lot to lose your job. Um, and so I, I don't have that. And so when you don't have it, generally people try to tell you, don't speak up, don't do, you know, don't do anything that would kind of, you know, raise red flags. Well, there was something on the floor that I wanted to speak on and I did. And, you know, I think maybe in my third year or so. And, you know, this, uh, and so I'm talking with the gentleman and I'm saying, hey, you know, I know I'm, you know, I'm not tenured, but I had to speak on this and, you know, I'm a man of integrity. And if I hear something, I'm going to say something. And then, you know, gentleman proceeds to say, well, you know, if all else fails, you can use a race card. I'm like, Hmm. you know, I had to sit back. And my immediate response was kind of, uh, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean about the race card? Cause I want, I want more information. Um, it's like, well, you know, there's these race hustlers and, and one, when you're using race hustlers, you already know that the age of the, that, that's an older person. You don't know young folks are using race hustlers. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to challenge the individuals. Like, so when have you heard me use 
race, you know, in a conversation about anything. And so long story short, uh, the person begins to backpedal faster than Deion Sanders covering a fly route. And so, <laughs> um, and so, you know, then it, it, then it's the gotcha moment kind of where it's like, oh, I was just testing you. Like you didn't get emotional about it. And so for that person, that whole situation was just entertainment for them. They wanted to bait me into having wow. a conversation that had nothing to do about race, but they interjected race. And I'm just like, see, you know, and I talk about it in, in the in the chapter about, you know, this microaggression and, you know, and, and race baiting and trying to use people's pain as a form of entertainment. And that's yeah. what the person was trying to do. And so this happens a lot uh, more, more than people really want to speak on. And I've had other situations where, like you said, you got to have your composure. I, I, I have to see the game that people are playing and mm-hmm. knowing, knowing when they're trying to bait me. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if they can get you emotionally, then they got you. Um, and, and I learned that very early, early on in life. And so, yeah, I've had those situations, uh, come up in my academic career. I mean, I remember in grad school, I, you know, I address things publicly, like on social media. I'm just like, cause my thing is once you do something in public, then, okay, it's, it, it's public, but you know, if you want to handle something privately, we can do that. But if you want to do something publicly, you know, I'm like, we can do that too. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've kind of had more discernment on when and where to do that. But, yeah, uh, microaggressions are real microvalidations, yeah. which is a class of microaggressions um, that, that tend to try to invalidate the, you know, the credentials and things of nature uh, of the group that you're attacking. And so, yeah, I've, I've had those experiences. Cool. I see. So what is your take on... Uh anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion bills, uh, and we see the trend across the country. And how do you believe, being in higher education, how do you believe that they can and will impact higher education? So that's a great question. There's a lot to unpack uh, when it comes to these anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion bills that are flooding the different nations. And I mean, you have Florida leading, you know, the pack uh, with their Stop Woke Act and all the things they're doing. And so for me, my personal take is, is that these are, you know, they're politically motivated and it's not about the enrichment of, of our youth. Like these tacks, uh, they're about stifling knowledge versus trying to advance it. Um, if, you know, if we're t- uh, before we get to the higher education, just know this is attack on all education, right? K through 12 and higher education. So for K through 12, I can assure you no K-12 teachers teaching CRT when that's a big part of why these anti-CR, uh, anti-DI bills are coming out as an attack on CRT, which is critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And so uh, no K-12 person, teacher is teaching CRT. Uh, I can assure you that. Um, and so when I think about these bills, I know they, they a lot of these came out of the woodwork um, during, you know, the pandemic and the social unrest and things of that nature uh, that was going on. And so for me, the impact on higher education is going to be, you know, it's it's going to be major. And one of the things we have to keep in mind is um, there are people who are leaving the academy, Mm. period. Um, Just like we're seeing teachers leave the classroom for you know, reasons such as this and others, um, they're also leaving the academy too. And so with bills like this, it makes it that much tougher to recruit high quality talent, but then also retain. 
So, you know, I have colleagues, you know, in Florida that work at public universities, which these state bills do impact uh, when you're at a public funded university, when these bills go through, universities have to abide by them, you know, otherwise they face penalties of losing funding and things of that nature. So what do those faculty members do who do teach on race and racism and things of that nature? Um, do they stay there and, and have to walk on eggshells? Because there, there have been, uh, I think Jonathan Cox is a sociologist at a university out there has spoken about, you know, some of the, the ramifications of, you know, the bills that come down, even if a judge strikes something down, the government can find another way mm-hmm. to get universities to conform to his will. Right. And so, you know, what do you do? You, you know, you maybe you look for another job, maybe you look to work at a private university, which have more safeguards because they're not under the purview of like, you know, the state bills in regards to they don't have to worry about funding being, you know, uh, snatched because they're private. And so um, I know when I was, you know, at Coker, I didn't have, you know, it was a private university. So when all this stuff was going down, I was like, okay, I'm good. Like, as long as our university doesn't do anything, then I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're at Publix, you have to worry about that. So rec- uh, retention, but then also recruiting. So if, you know, you got a lot of people in the market for jobs, they probably don't want to go to a state or and or a university where these stances are being taken. You know, jobs are already hard enough as it is. <laughs> We're not trying to do any more things that we need to do. And so that's just the stuff on the employment side. But what about the classroom? So higher education, academic freedom is something that we have that K through 12, they don't they, they don't necessarily have that. But in higher education, you know, we have academic freedom, which pretty much says that we can teach what we teach as long as it's relevant to the course and the content that the course is supposed to have. And that, you know, there's particular cases, um, Swayze versus New Hampshire, KCN versus Board of Regents, 1967, Tinker versus uh, Des Moines in 1969, Bishop versus Aronov, 1991. Um, and then currently in Florida, they have uh, Purnell versus Lamb. And these are all around different aspects of academic freedom and the roles of the institutions and what they can do in regards to dictating what professors can do. And so in all these cases, we have different elements. So this idea of differentiated fear could be something that just because something may bring up fear doesn't mean we can't discuss it. Um and so I bring all that up to say that there's precedence for protecting faculty from the intrusion of the university. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of precedent there. And so what's going on in Florida is that they're trying to really buck that precedent. Um, and if the Purnell Lamb case doesn't go well in, in favor of higher education people like myself and others who want to be able to challenge our students to get them to cr- think critically uh, about the content of the class, but then also the world in which they have to navigate, then we're in real trouble. And hmm. so um, uh, this is something that we have to you know, keep, in my, uh, keep our eyes on. Even in our beautiful state of South Carolina, uh, we, you know, they have bills and things going through the different houses and things of that nature. So I've been keeping my eye um, on that. But for right now, it's it's you know we have the K through twelve. You know, there's certain districts that yeah. have banned CRT yes. and 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 the language being used divide, divisive work and and it's so abstract and so it's it's dangerous because it's abstract. So it means you know people can come in and uh, uh, parents can have the power to pretty much say, hey, this is going on in my class. I don't like it. Do something about mm-hmm. it. And to walk on eggshells at every day in your job for a lot of people is not going to be worth it. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, I had to go on teachers for a bit because one, my mom was a teacher. My wife was a teacher right. back in Texas. She doesn't teach uh, full time now, but teachers are the backbone, mm-hmm. uh, period. Uh, no, no student, no professional makes in life without teachers. Uh, so we should be doing everything we can to make them comfortable, to allow them to do what they love. They're experts in the field. So why do we have all these people who aren't experts trying to dictate what they can do? Um, I love parent involvement. I think parents should be involved. But when we get to the level where we're trying to dictate what's in the classroom, where the experts know, I think that's a problem. And I also yeah. have to add that problem in higher education. I'm like, look, I don't like to flex the whole PhD thing, but I got a PhD in this. I, I, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And if you have my students, they're going to, they're, they won't, none of them will tell you, oh, Dr. Malone makes us use this theoretical framework. No, I introduce you to various theoretical frameworks that show you how different scholars and practitioners have looked at the world, have analyzed problems. And CRT is one of them that I can introduce. Um, but as far as making you subscribe to CRT, no. But right. because of all the stuff that's come up, well, now students want to know. So thank you, because now I get to talk about it more and let students find out for themselves. Yeah. And so these these bills, um, they are encouraging conversation, but you need to have more people who have the courage to have the nuanced conversations to be able to, you know, go through what's not true versus what's more true. That's pretty good insight. So as you were talking, you said something, you said a lot, but you said one thing <laughs> that jumped out at me. I wrote it down and it's jumping off off the paper at me right now. You said, let students find out for themselves. Right. You 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 give them the information, you give them the history, you give them the theories. Let them find out and figure it out for themselves. Now, you said, uh, you know, when you answering the last question, you talked about it being uh, politically driven. And, and, and I totally agree with that. So if that is the case. Right. What's really happening? You know, are we as uh, politicians trying to shape the way young people think and limit what they know? Are we trying to, you know, funnel our young people into a certain party? You know what I'm saying? What, what, under the surface, what's really, what is really happening in your opinion? So what is really happening? Um, I, I, I think, um, the curation of, of content and things of that nature is nothing new. Um, this, you know, the media, the, any media that we get from any network has already been filtered, right? Uh, we have buzzwords and things of that nature. Uh, the difference is now we have the internet. So with the internet and with all these different outlets, people can have the, the capacity to triangulate, but it's teaching people how to triangulate the information. So, yes, uh, uh, I think any move just in human life, there's some political motivation. There's very few things we can say is altruistic. Like we're humans, like, you know, we have behaviors, we have certain outcomes that we want, and we will try to place ourselves in the best position to do it. Mm -hmm. And so we see it with elections and and things of that nature. You're going to create campaigns. There's going to be propaganda. Uh, There will be a slanting of, of the truth to fit certain narratives. And so what I want to do with my students is like, okay, here are the, the facts as unbiased as possible. Here are some reputable sources. And then teach you some critical thinking skills 
to be able to triangulate what's true, what is bent in one way or another. So you can be able to, you know, be better informed. Mm-hmm. And so um, that that's my 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 kind of answer for that. So, yes, gotcha. you know, there's politics involved curating certain content uh, for the audience to take in. Uh, you might get incomplete information. And then so for, you know, the consumers, us, whether it be my students, ourselves here, your audience and other folks, we have to be able to triangulate and, and parse through the information and mm-hmm. see what actually uh, is there versus what people want us to think is there. Uh, just manipulation is real. Uh, that's just, again, I, a lot of this just comes down to just humans being humans. And we have these systems uh, that we can levy, you know, toward whatever end goals that we have. Right. All right. So being a sociology professor at Coastal Carolina University, what are some of the issues that are, that are most important to your students? So good question. Um, so in my short time, you know, there, um, I do, you know, recognize that a lot of these students just they're, you know, they've had a good amount of school online, right? So COVID, they did a lot of their virtual learning. So I think a big thing is they, they're really into the college experience. So things that may be consumed in media and things of that nature. What is it like to be in college? Um, and so that's been exciting to see. So they want to do all the events. Um, they're in class. Um, so they, they want to be there because they've been isolated for a while. And so that's one of the first things I know to be in there. They, they actually do want to be there. And I think that's a really great thing as a professor to experience that. Uh, there's a, a lot of diversity uh, at CCU. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, age, race, ethnicity, military affiliated, uh, immigration status, you know, all these different social categories. And it's a lot for one institution to try to get everybody to, you know, to service everybody. And so um, I think another thing I'm trying to get at is the sense of belonging. So I think something that's also important for students is this sense of belonging. How do I belong in this new space if you're in high school, if you've been there? How does someone with whatever my identity is, how do I belong here? And so I think that's very important for students. And with that uh, belonging, um, you can do this with, you know, social media, you can do this with affinity groups, and, and trying to get students to buy in to just, you know, the whole university. So, yeah, you can be smart and, art and great in class and all that stuff. But if you don't have a, a community that you're connected to, because college is not something you should do alone. This is a community effort. And if you don't have that, what you do start to see is it's going to contribute to uh, attrition. Like you're not going to be able to matriculate through because you're not connected too much and things of that nature. So students want to be there, but they also want to be connected. Um, you know, I think also what's important with our students, with those things, uh, those things, I think they're linked is mental health. So just the idea that being more open about mental health, uh, is important for, uh, for students. And so being able to communicate like, Hey, I'm, I'm just not having a great day. Here's some things that are going on. And as a professor, you know, I have the discretion to be like, okay, I hear you out. Um, take a self-care day. You know, let me know how you're doing. And then, you know, then we try to get back on track. And so mental health has to be something that's taken seriously. College is a very stressful time. 
um, and a lot of these students' lives. Um, there's a concept in sociology called anomie, which is, just means a sense of normlessness. And so for a lot of students that are transitioning from, particularly from high school to college, this is a new set of norms. So there's this sense of just rapid social change and they don't know what's going on, which can induce stress. Um, you're not comfortable, you don't understand. And then life things happen, you know, even so if you're, even if you're upperclassmen, these different things are happening that can induce stress, which can then take a toll on mental health. And so um, I think that's something that is uh, very important for students. And then kind of the last thing would be students are like, uh, how does this get me a job? What is it in, the, in these classes that are going to help me land that job? Why is it important? And so for me, you know, being a professor in sociology, I think it's one of those majors that people kind of rag on, like, oh, like, what, you know, you got a liberal arts degree in this field. Like, what are you going to do? Like, wash cars? Well, first, washing cars are a very uh, honorable thing to do. My dad detailed cars and all that. You can make some good money doing that. So don't use that as a way to dis my discipline. Uh, but what can sociology do? And so a part of my educate educating my students is to show them, here's what you can do with a sociology degree. Uh, you can go work for the government. Uh, you can be a CEO of a company. Yeah, you can run a nonprofit. You can be involved in community. You can be a college president. Uh, the, the president of, of Claflin <laughs> is a sociologist. And so, like, you can do these things. Um, was it Amanda uh, uh, Gorman who wrote the, the, the great poem, you know, sociology major? You have all these people. Obama's daughter who just graduated from USC is a sociology major. There is so much you can do. With sociology. And so part of my job as a professor is to translate that to my students. How do how do I put this in something that they can feel and touch and understand? And so, you know, when I talk about critical thinking, when I talk about triangulating information, how to read trends and data points, how to be able to build an art, uh, build an argument, be able to defend it, how to break down someone else's argument. And then for any employer, can you be teachable? If you can't take my teaching, <laughs> how's it going to work when you want to get a job from someone? Can't they? Employers want people who are teachable, uh, and so trying to articulate that. So I think those are kind of like the four things that I've seen in my short time. They want to be there. They want a sense of belonging. The understanding of mental health, and then how can this major and these experiences help me land a job? No, oh, that's pretty dope. It's pretty dope. So two of those things, they're all important. They are all important, but two things uh, really jump out at me. Number one, being a, not a professor, I'm not, my hustle isn't on your level, but being a facilitator, you know what I'm saying? I, you know, I love to, being a facilitator, I love to feel the energy in the room. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, you can feel it, you feed off it, you have a captive, a captive audience, you know they want to be there. Right. And, and that is when you 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 have breakthroughs and you have the best conversation. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm loving I'm excited for you. Um, I'm really digging what you're saying about the kids wanting to be there. I think that's a big deal. I think that's a real big deal. Number two. The mental health aspect. I think. Is major and, and I'm happy to hear that because I remember the first time. Uh, you know, when I first graduated from high school, I went to college. I was I went to college on a football scholarship. First time I had been away from home, never even drank alcohol until I went to college. And Dr. D, 
I lost my mind. You know what I'm saying? I was away from home, you know, and it was it was a lot. You know, you know the schedule of a, a student athlete. It's a full time job plus overtime. You know what I'm saying? So I'm handling that um, going to practice, going to study hall. By the time I get going, you know, by the time I get back to the room, it's 1030. You know what I'm saying? Then it's time to do it over again. Social life, this and that, you know. It's, it can be a lot, you know, and to be able to walk up to a professor today and say, hey, you know what? I'm not in the right space. I'm having a bad day. And to know that a professor can be receptive to that and say, you know what? I get it. Just go chill. Instead of, hey, you better sit your ass down in my class. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, but just to know that and, and, and that's encouraging to me. You know, I remember, you know, when I went in the army, I went in the army in 1993 and there was no place hotter on the planet than Fort Jackson, South Carolina in August. Right. And man, it, it was an experience. Drill sergeants were in your face, and this and that. And it was it was really. It was more mental than it was physical. I just finished playing college football. You know what I'm saying? The, the PT, would, that wasn't the issue, but it was mental. And you couldn't tell a drill sergeant, hey, bruh, back up, back up off me. I'm having, I'm having a bad day. What? They would eat your lunch. You know what I'm saying? But the Army's changed. Just like you're talking about, the Army has changed in basic training to where soldiers now have a voice to say, hey, my mental health isn't where it needs to be. I need I need to check this. You know what I'm saying? So if if the U.S. Army can change, you know, then then we can all find a way to put mental health at the forefront because it is extremely uh, important to our young people. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And so uh, to the first point, when you're saying they want to be there, I think a good part of, part of it, at least for me, is um tapping into what they're into. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm a consumer of hip hop. I've always been. And that's one of the aspects I wanted to bring um, to any job that I was in, because that's, you know, the stories that they're telling, you know, uh, either, uh, you know, I was around it, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not going to sit there and be like, oh, like I was in the streets. Like, no, the way I always tell people was, is I'm of the streets, meaning like I know my family's background, things of that nature, but I was never in them. Mm-hmm. And, and in the same token, I'm in the academy, but I'm not of it. So like, uh, yeah, I'm here teaching it, but this isn't like, you know, this isn't, uh, I'm not of it. Um, you know, maybe my, my daughter can make that claim because, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm of it because my dad's been in it and my grandmother, blah, 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 but for me, no, like uh, I, I'm in it, but I'm not of it. And so I want to bring that into the classroom. So, you know, the rappers they know about, I know about, I integrate some of their life happenings. In the lecture, as you know, if it's relevant. So there's a rapper, Gunna, um, who the kids love. But, you know, in street culture, there's this idea of being a snitch and a rat. One, I tell students, I'm like, look, if you're not a part of that culture, you shouldn't be adopting that language Uh, because there's just a lot that that comes with that. But, you know, in class, you know, there's a concept uh, in my criminology and criminal justice class, allocution. Allocution is when you go to court where you would know, (laughs) but when you go to court and say, hey, here's some things that. Uh, some crimes that I've, you know, I've been, I've witnessed, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I, I introduced the concept and I talk about this rapper Gunner who allocuted. And so them making those connections like, oh, 
like, yeah, you know, it, it, it helps them grasp it on more. Mm-hmm. And they like, the, again, it's that connection. So not only connecting yeah. to one another, but connecting to the content to make it make sense for them to invest in them. And so yeah. that's, you know, I think that's a big part of me and why I want to do what I want to do. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a professor to during my undergrad who could make those uh, type of connections. For the most part, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tough to kind of keep you engaged when we don't feel that connection. The other right. part, the, the mental health piece is always important because even as faculty, um, one thing I talk about in that chapter I referenced earlier is the concept of emotional labor. As faculty, we get a lot of emotional labor. And then if you're a, a person of color and particularly black, male or black, female, and, and a lot of women scholars talk about this as well, is that the emotional labor students will come to you and like lay all their problems on you, things of that nature. And we don't we're not trained to, to build that kind of capacity, but the students come to you because they're like, oh, they, they, they would know because they've experienced it. And just like, what do I do with all of this, right? Um, how do I take care of myself when the emotional labor is there? And, you know, I, you know, I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. Like, you know, there are other colleagues who will never get this kind of emotional labor. Um, and so my job becomes tougher to navigate uh, because you have to do this care work for these students because you want them to be there. You want them to know that you're an advocate, but also what is the weight that I'm taking on? And so mm-hmm. learning how to create those boundaries has also been a learning experience uh, for me because I'm deeply invested in my students. Uh, but I have to always have to remind myself, you know, Danny, you know, your wife and your daughter need you. So be sure that you, you have these boundaries so that you have enough to, you know, be present for them. And so that mental yeah. health piece um, is very important, not only for our students, but also for faculty and staff, because again, you're dealing with humans and, and relationships and, and things of that nature. It's real, you know, being in <laughs> law enforcement, being a police chief and, and now, and even in my, uh, capacity at work now, you know, being a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, you, you engage employees, engage you that, that have felt sometimes, uh, that they didn't have a voice. Right. And so all of a sudden, boom. You know, so emotional labor is real. It's real. Last week, we lost a legendary football player, a civil rights activist and a great man. Um, what can you say personally about the contributions of Jim Brown? Yeah, so we lost him the day after my birthday, if I'm not mistaken, May 18th. Um, so Jim Brown is a legend, right? Uh, three-star collegiate athlete, I believe three times Hall of Fame in football, track, and lacrosse, if I'm not mistaken, at Syracuse. Many uh, NFL accolades, you know, uh, in regards to rushing, considered the greatest running back, and some would even argue the greatest football player that we've ever seen. Um, and then, you know, just uh, leaving the game in defiance. So the, the the story is that he was filming Dirty Dozens, there was a delay in production, and he was supposed to go to camp, and he was a no-show. And so uh, Art Modell, uh, the owner of the, of the Browns, was like, hey, uh, you need to come back to camp. And he was, you know, if not, we're going to find you. And so then he just makes an announcement he's going to retire from the NFL. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, okay. And so he knew there was a greater calling for yeah. him. And yeah. so getting into acting, media, but then more, you know, but more importantly, what we know him for is the, the being a, a staunch advocate uh, for civil rights. And so... Um, organizing the the Cleveland Summit, uh, mm-hmm. so this is where those prominent athletes that that we yeah. know, so Bill Russell, um, uh, Louis Alcindor, who became mm-hmm. you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. and all of them coming together um, 
to support Ali who refused uh, the draft. That happened in the 60s. So my parents mm-hmm. were like, you know, right. three or four years old <laughs> when all that was going on. But just hearing the stories and, 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 and understanding the importance of being a man of conviction. Mm-hmm. So you're at the top of the world. You, you, you know, he was like the reigning MVP when he retired yeah. um, and saying like, no, there's something greater that I need to yeah. be fighting for. And, and making that, that way um, for, I think the contemporary athlete, because we had to think at that time, that meeting that they had at mm-hmm. the watershed moment yeah. Um, yeah. for the black athlete, um, for this, uh, this intentional integration of politics and sports. Cause one thing we, you know, the, the, the national conversation tends to be, well, I go to sports to get away from politics. It's like, well, mm. you have a whole thing called the Olympics, which yeah. is, <laughs> that was always political. <laughs> right. Like, right. you know, right. so sports, if you look at its history, the political leanings have always been there. Um, and so what they did there was, you know, they want to rally against this, the, this, um, the, the race, the racist conventions of the time. And the understanding that it didn't matter where you were, like this mattered. Not only for me as Jim Brown, right? But he also was like, I'm, I'm being a voice for those who don't necessarily have a voice. Much respect to Jim Brown. Uh, of course, our heart and prayers go out to his family, and we hope he rests in peace. Uh, but for me, that summit was big. Uh, like you said, he walked away from the game after nine years. The man, he was still the man when he walked away. He was 30 years old, right? And conviction, you know. But the thing I like about him the most is the fact that he used his platform. He could have walked away, acted, you know, done whatever, but he used his platform to pull people together. He used his platform to call other athletes together. And I look back then and I look at now, and I would say that our athletes today, what doesn't matter what, what, what uh, sport it is, baseball, football, hockey, our athletes today need a Jim Brown. We need a Jim Brown. When you look at some of the things going on with John Moran and, you know, we need a Jim Brown. Yeah. But moving on, because our time is short, we got it, two minutes left, uh, Dr. D. Okay. If you had the opportunity to interview some of your students 10 years from now, after, you know, they've been under your tutelage, what would you hope they would say about the kind of impact you had on them? So that's a good question. Um so I would hope that students have, you know, I would, if they asked about me that they say, you know, Dr. Mom was a professor that kept it real with us and himself. Uh, he was very comfortable in his own skin and tried to cultivate an environment where his students also felt comfortable being themselves. That I actually cared about them as people, not just students. Uh, but then also that I did the work to prepare them for the world that they were going to have to navigate. Because uh, I think that's important. Uh, but lastly, you know, that integrity matters. Um, and that's because ultimately people remember you for your work, your word, and how you made them feel. And so if you do something, be able to stand on it. And if you cannot, then admit to it and deal with the consequences. Uh, no one's perfect, but we should be held accountable for our actions. This is true in school as it is in life. This reflects my teaching mantra uh, from Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, in which he says, education must not simply teach work, it must teach life. And so that's what I would hope my students would uh, say as far as my impact on their lives, they've been able to navigate this world a bit better with a more open mind and more critical mind because they uh, took a class or had a conversation with Dr. Malone. Wow. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, that was a drop 
the mic type moment. You just dropped it. And I really appreciate you, man. I really had a good time chopping it up with you. Uh, thank you uh, so much for being here. Would you come back? Yeah, this was amazing. Thank you, Kelvin. I, I really appreciate the the space you give with safe conversations. It felt comfortable. It felt cool. It felt like we were just kicking it. <laughs> so it. I would love to come back. Just sure. let me know. Awesome. Awesome. So you heard it first from Dr. Danny Malone, Jr., sociology uh, professor at Coastal Carolina University. He is the professor that keeps it real with his students and prepares them for the future. I thank you all for, uh, you know, engaging us in another conversation and joining us with Safe Conversations. And we will see you next time. Peace. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find Kevin Waits on Facebook at Kevin Waits and join the Safe Conversations group. Follow the Mino Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mino Line Media. Get the Mino Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. You've worked hard for what you have your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.